Okay, so this is the GI tract review. Um, she wanted us to go over the basic anatomy. So you can go from the mouth to the epiglottis, to the esophagus, past the epiglottis. Um, then you have the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, you have the stomach. And this, in the stomach contains the fundus, that really high part, the body of the stomach, the antrum, and the pylorus. And the pylorus empties right into um, the duodenal bulb. But the muscles on the stomach, you have longitudinal, circular, oblique. And after the duodenum bulb, you have the duodenum, jejunum, and ilium. Um, you have the ileocecal valve or sphincter, which actually separates the small intestine from the large intestine. And so once we start the large intestine, it goes up, over, and down, ascending, transverse, descending. Then you have your sigmoid colon and your rectum. So that's just kind of the basic anatomy she might want us to review. Um, we looked up innervation of the GI tract and its effects, and pretty much all of the... Uh, Innervation of the GI tract is both sympathetic and parasympathetic, but it's run by the enteric nervous system, um, and it's all autonomic nervous system stimulus. So it starts with salivation, just even thinking about food can causes both parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous responses, um, and everything all the way down is parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous systems to both divisions of the autonomic nervous system. So I'm not sure. I think the test question might be on the fact that it's your enteric nervous system, which is specific to the GI tract. So um, how does the GI tract work? Basic physiology, each organ, parts of the stomach, intestines, gallbladder, pancreas, etc. So we started with excretions. So the mouth uh, excretes amylase, lipase, phospholipase. Um, and then the stomach is like everything. So um, you have basically your pepsin and your gastric lipase, but you have your gastric glands, which empty into the gastric pit. And within these glands are the parietal glands that secrete hydrochloric acid, which dissolves food and acts like a bactericide. And it also converts pepsinogen to pepsin. Um, we have intrinsic factor, which if you remember is important for the absorption of B12 later, and later on, it's absorbed in the terminal ileum, just as a side note. Um, gastropherin. And then you have your chief cells, which secrete pepsinogen, which is converted to pepsin, um, and which is in the gastric fluid. And it also secretes acidic lipase. The G cells is easy to remember because that releases gastrin. Then you have enterochromaffin-like cells, which secrete your histamine. And D cells secrete somostatin, somostatin. All of this is from the gastric glands. Um, phases of gastric secretion, you, secretion, you have your cephalic, uh, which is your anticipa anticipatory secretions. You have your gastric phase. And you have your intestinal phase, which is when it hits the duodenum. So again, the phases of gastric secretion are cephalic, gastric, and intestinal. Uh, the small intestine uh, releases enterokinase, disaccharides, maltase, sucrase, lactase, isomaltase, and pepsidases. And the small intestine is where almost everything nu nutritionally is absorbed. So next, actually, we'll talk about absorption. Um, 
one of the things that the stomach does absorb, you might recall, is alcohol. Um, but the small intestine is where all the major nutrients are digested and absorbed. The cells in the small intestine are epithelial cells, and they are formed of lipids and therefore hydrophobic. So electrolyte and water are not transported, or they're, they're transported through tight junctions and interest, not the, in intracellular spaces rather than across like cell membranes. Um, water diffuses passively across, across hydrostatic pressure and osmotic gradients. And 85 to 90% of all water is absorbed in the small intestine. The rest is used and absorbed in the large intestine. Um, salivary and pancreatic amylases break down your starches to oligosaccharides. Amylases, starches. Okay, so this was a big one, and I think it's important that we remember this. What is bilirubin? What is its role? And how is it measured? And how is it metabolized? Where does it come from? So I'm going to kind of give you the bilirubin story. Um, it's the byproduct of destruction of old red blood cells. Aged red blood cells, primarily in the spleen and liver, are taken up and destroyed by macrophages. Within these cells, hemoglobin is separated into heme and globin. The globin, this is what we're going to focus on. Heme goes somewhere else. The globin is further degraded into amino acids, which are recycled to form a no, new protein. Now bring back the heme. The heme is what is converted to biliverdin. So heme to biliverdin, and then biliverdin through heme oxygenase and enzymatically is converted into bilirubin. So heme to biliverdin to bilirubin. After bilirubin is released into the plasma, it attaches to your albumin, that, that serum protein that's so important. And then it's unconjugate. Uh, and then it's unconjugated or free and lipid soluble. So unconjugated means it's lipid soluble. In the liver, the unconjugated bilirubin is taken up by the sinusoids from the plasma and moves into the hepatocytes. In the hepatocyte, glucocoronic acid is joined with bilirubin and then it becomes conjugated. And that is where it becomes water soluble so that it can be excreted in bile. When conjugated bilirubin reaches the distal ileum and colon, it is, un, it is conjugated. It is DE conjugated by bacteria and converted to urobilinogen, then travels to the kidney and it makes your pee yellow. So it's excreted, bilirubin is I used to think it was only excreted through the bowels, but it's actually broken down in the bowels into that uro um, bilonogen <laughs> where it travels to your kidney and makes your pee yellow. So it's, it's excreted through both um, the bowels and your pee. So um, anyway, so you have hemoglobin separated into hemoglobin. Heme is converted to biliverdin. Biliverdin is converted to bilirubin, where it's not conjugated, goes to the liver, gets conjugated, where it can be excreted into bile salts, and in the bile salts, it's excreted then into the colon, or into the uh, small and large intestine, and then converted by bacteria to urobilinogen. Okay, so the total, total bilirubin, um, the levels are 0.3 to 1.1, and I think that's total serum bilirubin. I'll put that in the notes. And conjugated bilirubin is 0.1 to 0.4.
Next, how are the cells in the GI tract replaced and what is their lifespan? So the entire epithelial population is replaced every four to seven days. Um, undifferentiated stem cells move up. They kind of grow up and between the bases of the villi, uh, they become columnar epithelial cells and they secrete water, electrolytes and enzymes and goblet cells. Or goblet cells secrete mucus. They function for a few days and are shed into the intestinal lumen and are an important part of endogenous protein. Many factors, that means that we use that for, <laughs> we recycle that, we eat it. Many factors can influence proliferation and these include starvation, B12 deficiency, cytotoxic drugs, um, radiation, all those things that suppress cell division. And age can also shorten the, the lifespan of the villi or, or the the dif the um, the new cells coming up. So, um, how do cells communicate? Liver cells, types, and functions. So, we've got the hepatocytes. These are cells of the liver. Hepatocytes. They're the functional cells of the liver that are capable of regeneration, um, allows resected liver tissue to grow. They secrete electrolytes, lipids, lecithin, bile acids, and cholesterol into the caniculi. Canaliculi, canaliculi. Um, plasma proteins are synthesized and released into the bloodstream. Um, lipocytes in the liver are star-shaped, and they store lipids, including vitamin A. And you've got your Kupfer cells. Kupfer cells are macrophages. They are the largest population of tissue macrophages in the body, and they're important for healing of liver injury bilirubin production, and lipid metabolism. And they're also bactericidal. And then we have stellate cells. They remove foreign substances in the blood and trap bacteria, and they contain vitamin A. And we have natural killer cells, uh, which are just like what they sound. They're pit cells, tumor defense, and production of interferon Y. We have disease processes of the liver. Um... Portal hypertension. So that's the abnormal hypertension in the portal vein. The causes and disorders that obstruct or impede blood flow, uh, intrahepatic fibrosis with cirrhosis, inflammation, viral hepatitis, ascites. Post-hepatic causes are hepatic vein thrombosis, cardiac disorders like right-sided heart failure. The most common cause of portal hypertension is obstruction by fibrosis from cirrhosis. Um, portal hypertension can cause esophageal varices, um, dilated blood vessels, dark stools, and if those esophageal varices rupture, it can be fatal. Um, the treatment is non-selective beta blockers. We're going to slow that heart rate down and try to lower pressure. Uh, another um, secondary thing to hyper portal hypertension, you can get splenomegaly. Um, moving on, we have hepatopulmonary syndrome, right to left of the portal vein. This is, the, this is where you get right to left, the shunting that induces hypoxemia. A sim, like the blood, there's too much pressure for the blood to go through the liver, so it kind of goes to the right, or, the right to left. Um, the symptoms is digital clubbing and shortness of breath and cyanosis. And you really have to have a liver transplant at this point. Um, the body has tried to um, compensate, but it's it, it's pretty irreversible. 
um, you can have ascites. Ascites can be caused by a decrease in serum albumin levels, portal hypertension, and capillary hydrostatic pressure to exceed capillary oncotic pressure. Next, we have hepatic encephalopathy. This is mainly because of increased ammonia levels. If it reaches the brain as glutamine, it can cause swelling, which alters the mental status. Um, hepatic encephalopathy can be is infection, hemorrhage, and increased medication. The blood can also cause altered mental status for um, basically hepatic insufficiency. You start taking medications and they build up instead of going out of your body. Tracking serum levels of ammonia helps to understand if treatments are effective. Uh, she has jaundice in here, but jaundice is hyperbilirubinopenia. So um, that was when we talked about bilirubin. Okay, common disorders, presentations, and symptoms. Um, we, want, we highlighted a few of them in here. We, we highlighted dumping syndrome as a GI uh, disorder. This usually happens... After dumping syndrome is like just basically large amounts of diarrhea, but after gastric bypass surgery, rapid gastric emptying and creation of a high osmotic gradient within the small intestine causes a sudden shift of fluid from the vascular compartment to intestinal lumen. And so when you have that sudden shift in, in, um, in volume, you're also going to have, uh, like short, um, lightheadedness, hypotension, and then all of this causes diarrhea. Fluid shift causes decreased vascular volume, and patients present as pale and weak with a low um, blood pressure. They can be sweaty. You treat with diet, smaller, more frequent meals that are high in protein. There's also a, a thing called late dumping syndrome, and it's caused by super high carbohydrate meal. And they use somatostatin as a treatment for that, which delays gastric emptying. Somatostatin, statin, stay delay, gastric emptying, pain in the GI tract. So you can have parietal, which is the outer layer, outer layer of the peritoneum pain, which comes from the parietal peritoneum. And it's more localized and intense. Nerve fibers in the parietal peritoneum respond to skin dermatomes. So, it's, so I guess that means it's only one-sided. You can only have an innervation on one side with parietal pain. And then you can have visceral pain, which is poorly localized, dull, and difficult to explain. Um, so again, parietal is like you have, it's, it's distinct, it's sharp, um, you know right where it is, but it's only on one side that you'll feel the pain. Um, diarrhea, we're just going to talk about diarrhea. <laughs> so osmotic diarrhea is caused by non-absorbable substances that draws water into the intestinal lumen by osmosis. Small bacterial overgrowth can cause osmotic diarrhea. Uh, you can have secretory, secretary, secretory diarrhea, which can be caused by an overgrowth of C. diff following antibiotic therapy. Um, mucosal secretion of bicarb and chloride is uh, something that happens with that C. diff. You can have motility diarrhea, which is caused by resection of the small intestine or surgical bypass of intestines, IBS, uh, mucosal secretions of bicarbon chloride or inhibition of net sodium absorption. On the other side of that, we have constipation, which normal how I just, just to let you know that normal bowel habits are two to three a day to once a week. I found that profound <laughs> once a week. So you can have primary constipation 
and it has three parts, which is um, primary constipation can be normal transit constipation or functional, which means difficulty with evacuation. It's the most common type of, and is a result of sedentary lifestyle. You can have inadequate fluid intake, which is also functional um, and causes slow transit and impaired colonic motility. And then you can have pelvic floor dysfunction, which is basically your pelvic floor muscles are weak and it's seen after pregnancy and it's the inability of the pelvic floor muscles and sphincter muscles to relax, not contract, to relax. Then you can have, so those are all primary forms of constipation. You can also have secondary constipation, which comes from diet, medications, or neurogenic um, issues or opioids. So basically like something else that you've done. Um, we kind of went through eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, obesity. Um, and even if you are obese, it doesn't mean you have, you don't have malnutrition. Common disorders and presentations in children. Well, you have jaundice when babies are born. We know that. Um, their liver isn't really functioning at full throttle yet. Um, another common one is the pyloric stenosis, which presents as infants just kind of vomiting all the time because they're, the, the pylorus is, um, the lumen is smaller, and so the food can't empty properly into that duodenal bulb. And so you'll see kids presenting with just... Um, vomiting, projectile vomiting even, um, megacolon, celiacs, and in celiacs, the autoimmune damages the villi and the epithelium of small intestines, and it causes malabsorption. We can see cystic fibrosis too, which is that increase in chloride that you see, and it causes all the mucus. Um, and that's all for the GI tract. Those are the notes from the GI tract. I will send you guys a paper copy of this. And it shows, if you have more questions, it shows the page numbers where we got this information, our study group. So anyway, hopefully this helps. Listen to it. Listen to it again. And good luck, everyone.